This is Reclaiming Jane, an Austin podcast for fans on the margins. I'm Lauren Weathers. And I'm Emily Davis-Hale. And today, we're connecting random topics that you suggested to Jane Austen in our Six Degrees of Jane Austen segment. I'm so excited about this. This is some of the most unrestrained fun I feel like that we get to have. Oh my god, some of the suggestions this time were truly... Off the wall. Off the wall. (laughs) I'm glad that we did not have the ultimate responsibility of choosing from these topics. We put it to our patrons to vote. Thank you so much to everyone who's a patron who voted on what topics they wanted to hear for this episode, because I surely would not have been able to choose. So I'm glad that we put that power into other people's hands instead. I love foisting responsibility on other people. Absolutely. I'm a Libra. I don't want to make decisions. Oh my God, that's so very Libra. So as we said, we gathered a bunch of suggestions from social media and put them to the vote for our patrons. We have not exactly the top six because there was like a four-way tie between some of them. So a couple of them have been randomly chosen, but we have six topics that we're going to connect to Jane Austen one way or another. Each of us has three and Lauren has to go first. Yes. So before we kick it off, what are yours? I feel like we should also say we're not doing traditional six degrees. So if you listen to our last six degrees of Jane Austen episode, you know that we're not going through and making six degrees of connection like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon game. Uh, we decided there are no rules and we're just going to connect them the way that we want to. So it's our podcast and we do what we want. Quick just caveat with that or disclaimer, I suppose. But the, the three topics that I have for today are the Spice Girls, the Mandalorian, and the U.S. Supreme Court. Three completely disparate things. <laughs> wow, yes. <laughs> Mine are Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Lord of the Rings, and Swedish Hospitality. <laughs> Such a fascinating cross-section of things, which is exactly what we asked for. Yep. We wanted completely random topics. Yeah, you guys delivered. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. We do also appreciate some of the topics that are things that we would tend to cover in in our typical episodes. If you did not hear your topic read just now, never fear, because it may appear in a future episode of Reclaiming Jane, if it has not already. It's still in the pool. If it was just a random one, it's definitely still in the pool for future Six Degrees episodes. But if it's something that like you genuinely want to hear discussed in the context of Jane Austen, we'll probably get to it in a future regular episode. We have a lot to talk about. We have so much to talk about. At least three. Which would you like to hear me discuss first? All right. I'm going to try and give us the chance to get more positive through the episode so we can end on a high note. Oh, I have a feeling I know where you're going with this. Let's start with the U.S. Supreme Court. Ah, yes. (laughs) U.S. Supreme Court has been in the news uh, for a variety of not fantastic reasons over the last couple of weeks, one of which... I actually went to the Supreme Court for the very first time to protest about, so we went to go vent some rage about the inability to regulate your own body. And that was just, I think, something that a lot of people with similar political beliefs have been grappling with over the last couple of weeks. Simultaneous rage and heartbreak and despondence that you feel when choice is taken away from you, or when it's made more difficult for you to access that choice. And I was thinking about how Jane Austen too is about your right to choose and specifically for Austen, like women's right to choose in the case of 
Roe v. Wade, it's not limited to women specifically, but for Jane Austen and what she was writing about, it definitely is. And so many of her books are about the importance of being able to determine what your life is going to look like and what your choice is in the face of a society that specifically limits you. And even when you are pressured otherwise to stay true to yourself and what choice that you want to make. And we see that most recently with Fanny in Mansfield Park. She knows what choice she wants. She knows what she wants. And despite everyone telling her that it's a stupid decision and she shouldn't make it and that she has a duty to other people to do otherwise, she stays true to her convictions because it's her choice and she gets to make it. We see it with Lizzie and Charlotte in Pride and Prejudice. We see it in Jane Austen's own life and her allegedly turning down a proposal that she received and then choosing not to marry. And I just think that autonomy and choice are prized in Austen throughout all of her works. And even as she is reckoning with things like duty and the constraints of social norms, we still get that independent message throughout of the importance of making your own choice. And I think that that is a message that I want to cling to moving forward, that despite what the U.S. Supreme Court has recently said that my choice is still mine and my body is still mine and you can attempt to regulate autonomy but you can't ever take it away. I really tried to make that as positive as I could. (laughs) I think you did a good job. I suspected that that was kind of the bent you were going to go for Mm -hmm. with that topic but I mean as always, you said it so wonderfully and made such excellent points in in the face of something that is, you know, extremely upsetting. Thank you. Thank you for that. And now we've gotten that out of the way. Praise Jesus. And hopefully we can have (laughs) so much more fun with the rest of our topics. Absolutely. I was complaining about this topic before, but it's just because I enjoy escapism. I think it is very important to talk about, and I'm glad that we had an avenue to discuss it on the podcast where we wouldn't really, it would have felt like shoehorning it otherwise, I think. Or specifically like, we want to talk about this thing, so we're going to make it connect with something that happened in Mansfield Park. So I do appreciate it. Um, But I did not mean to complain. That's what this episode specifically is all about, is we're going to shoehorn it in. Yes. (laughs) That's the full goal. I guess I should disclose that one of my topics is also a little... I mean, shockingly, given my three topics, one of them is also not so upbeat. The other two are kind of... Silly. I I don't know if you'll be able to guess which one it is. It's not what you would think, probably. I have Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? Lord of the Rings, and Swedish Hospitality. I want to hear you talk about Brooklyn Nine-Nine in the vein of becoming more positive as we go. Okay. (laughs) Good choice that I definitely didn't hint to you about. I would have figured it out eventually. Yeah. So Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a television show. It's a workplace comedy focused on a precinct of the NYPD. So my connection to Jane Austen is looking at the way that police are used almost as set dressing or a premise, similarly to the way Austen uses the military. In both cases, there's a deep and rather dark history there that we just don't really see because it's presented uncritically as an institution that exists. For Austen, especially in the period during which she was writing and publishing, the military was an incredibly pointed colonial force. We talked about this especially with Colonel Brandon being in the Indies and all of the, you know, super questionable things that the British military especially undertook during the long 18th century and, you know, most of the other centuries as well. (laughs) 
<laughs> but similarly, even though we have kind of this pop culture understanding of police these days as often either the bumbling cop or the well-meaning genius, but the history of police work in the United States is very deeply rooted in the systemic racism that has led to most of our institutions. So the modern police force is based in slave patrols, which were volunteer groups initially who banded together to find and return enslaved people who were trying to escape from their enslavers. So, police in modern pop culture, as in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the way that we see it is just completely devoid of the actual context that those institutions have actually existed within. I've heard it termed as copaganda before. Yes, exactly. I found that very fitting. Yeah, it presents a shiny, fun view of what police work is and what police forces are that is not only contrary to the history of policing, but also to the modern reality of policing, which I'm just, I'm not even gonna go into that right now because I think we've done enough. We are going up in positivity for the rest of this episode. Yep. (laughs) Good vibes only here on out. Exactly. But thank you. I think that's a really important connection to make. And I like how you connected it to the lurking military that's ever present in the background of Jane Austen's novels. Lurking is such a good way to put it because they'll just, you know, there'll be a one-off mention of like, oh, the militia is here. or Oh, so-and-so went into the Navy. I'm like, but you guys know what they're doing, right? (laughs) Finish the sentence. Went into the Navy to do what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's my Brooklyn Nine-Nine connection. Yay! Sorry if y'all thought that this cop comedy was going to be a fun one. We don't do fun here. (laughs) I know you know this, but my favorite Brooklyn Nine-Nine fun fact is that my dad went to high school with the guy who plays Captain Holt. (laughs) Okay. Spice Girls or The Mandalorian? Which one would you like to hear me discuss next? Let's do The Mandalorian. Okay. Oh, funnily enough, that's actually a perfect segue. Thank you. Excellent. Um, I was just talking about my dad and my connection with The Mandalorian is fatherhood and parenthood. Um, (laughs) Aww. I also watch it with my dad because he is the person who got me into Star Wars. So, you know, just connections all around. So for those of you like Emily who do not watch The Mandalorian, it is a Star Wars universe TV show that's on Disney+. Plus. It was one of their first original offerings when the platform launched. And it is about a Mandalorian, which is a type of like warrior soldier in the Star Wars universe who originally is tasked with eliminating a certain target, but then the target ends up being the baby Yoda that you have probably seen all over your social media at some point in time. Rather than eliminating this target, he is like, well, this baby Yoda is too cute. You're mine now. Who among us would not have reacted the same way? Even trained killers are helpless in the face of those eyes. They're just so cute. So as he is going on his journey and putting together pieces of other mysteries and kind of resisting how cute this kid is. He's just like, oh, well, I'll just bring him for a bounty. I'm not actually going to kill him. And of course, you know, affection grows. But it is such a lovely way to explore like fatherhood and parenthood, found family. But it made me think of other supportive Austin fathers who we see over the course of the books. So the three 
that we've read so far. The only one who really fits the bill is Mr. Bennett, which is, you know, questionable, but we have limited choice here. Sense and Sensibility, he dies, chapter one. (laughs) Mansfield Park, Fanny's biological dad kind of sucks. So we have some limited options with which to work with, but Mr. Bennett does redeem himself despite some of the questionable parenting choices he makes throughout Pride and Prejudice and how supportive he is of Lizzie. And I feel like that book is special in that we get to see a father-daughter bond between two characters, like, explicitly written and explored. And I would also argue that if we're comparing parenthood and sacrifices for your children, that the Mandalorian is a better parent than Mr. Bennett in this situation and with other Austin parents because he's so willing to make sacrifices for his found child who he's pretty much adopted into his life whether it's sacrifice of safety or of his life or of his livelihood he's willing to put a lot on the line for this kid even though my original connection between the Mandalorian and Jane Austen was thinking about oh look at these two supportive fathers in different environments it also made me think about how stark the difference was between what The Mandalorian is willing to do for his found family and what some other family members in Austin are unwilling to do for their biological family who, according to the rules of the time, should be very important to them. So I have more of a food for thought connection than a specific, here's my link between the Mandalorian and Austin, but I just think it's interesting to pose the question of how far would you go for your kids? Well, That was delightful. Thank you. Thank you. I love a little parent connection. (laughs) That was also well chosen because I think my Spice Girls one is just pure joy. So I'm glad I get to save that for last. All right. Well, between my two, Swedish Hospitality and Lord of the Rings, which one do you want to hear next? Mm, Okay. I feel like whatever you have prepared for Lord of the Rings is going to be fantastic. So I'm going to save that for last and say Swedish Hospitality. Very fair. And you're completely right. Also, (laughs) I feel like if I did Lord of the Rings before, I just wouldn't be able to focus on whatever my remaining topic was. I feel like your energy for Lord of the Rings is just automatically going to be higher and we should just end on that high note. (laughs) You're correct. But for now, let's focus on Swedish hospitality. I was to bring the energy way the fuck down. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. So for anyone who's not chronically online, there was this whole explosion earlier in the summer when people found out that apparently in Sweden, when someone is at your house during a meal time, it's not expected that you feed the guest. Of course, everyone on Twitter is like, oh my god, Swedes don't feed people who are in their house. Like, what is up with that? From what I saw, it seems more like, you know, if there's an unexpected guest over, even if they stay at your house during the entire duration of the meal, you're not expected to prepare a setting for them as well. But of course, you know, Americans being Americans and everyone else being everyone else, we're completely up in arms about this. How insanely rude. So I have a couple of connections for this. First, just the air of like snobbishness that was projected onto that made me immediately think of Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Oh, okay. Especially her comment about coming to practice the piano in the housekeeper's room. Which is completely out of the way and wouldn't be a bother. So like, oh yeah, you can totally be here and use our resources, whatever. Um, But just as long as you're not bothering anybody or putting them out. So that was my entry connection. Okay. But then I moved on to Mansfield Park and the Bertrams. 
and their completely quotidian mistreatment of Fanny and how it doesn't even occur to them that it could be shitty the way they treat this person who's in their house that they're actually supposed to be caring for. Who? (laughs) But on a more meta level also, it made me think both the way that non-Swedes treated this situation and the way that modern readers look at Jane Austen, Mm. the comparison between how we treat unfamiliar cultural norms as being incomprehensible to us and also rude at times, even though when you're within that particular context, it probably doesn't stand out at all. I love that. Yeah. That's a really good point. Had, Had a lot of different entry points there surprising connections to me yeah it also gets back to the heart of people feeling as though they can't enjoy Jane Austen just because it's so incomprehensible Mm -hmm. until you realize here here are the entry points where I can see how this relates back to me in a way and then everything seems to make more sense but without that context it just feels very out of place and rude (laughs) exactly yeah we're not living in the early 19th century we don't know the unspoken social rules and so we see people on the page acting according to those and we're like what the fuck are they doing when you know in their context it might have made perfect sense so yeah swedes and austin characters basically the same yes (laughs) today they are today they are yeah (laughs) lauren would you grace us with your connection between Jane Austen and the Spice Girls? I would love to. When this topic came up, I knew, <laughs> like, it just, it automatically had to go to Lauren. The Spice Girls were, like, one of my first loves as a kid as far as music goes. So they were my first cassette tape that I ever got. I had a Spice Girls bike. That was my very first two-wheel bike. As far as my early childhood went and pop music, the Spice Girls were it. <laughs> So if you listen back to our first episode where I talked about Little Mix on day one of Reclaiming Jane, the Spice Girls set the stage for that obsession. So I'm very happy I got this topic. Lauren made me watch Spice World when we were roommates because I had never seen it. Because it is a classic of camp theater. (laughs) I mean, it was incredible. It was the right decision. But continue. So Spice Girls, of course, are known for not only being the biggest girl group of all time, but also for their specific brand of girl power. And the connection that I immediately made was how both the Spice Girls and Jane Austen are really good representations of the brand of feminism that was specific to the time period that they're in. And even though feminism wasn't really used as a term until about 1837, so after Austen's time, I have no doubt that had that been something that was really in the vernacular of the time that she would have called herself a feminist because it's so evident in everything that she wrote. Even if there's not a specific term for it, it doesn't mean that you don't embody that. And I see Jane Austen as being as much as you can be a feminist in Regency England. She's very exemplary of what that would look like for that time, given that there wasn't really wide-reaching women's rights movement. There were people like Mary Wollstonecraft writing on the vindication of women. Like there were obviously intellectuals who were introducing that into the conversation, but it wasn't the same kind of movement like we would see later in the 19th century. And then you fast forward to the 1990s with the Spice Girls, and they also kind of shied away from using the word feminism because it was the 90s. I think every once in a while you would hear them 
kind of use it in conversation, but for the most part, they were more critiqued by feminists for commercializing feminism and commodifying it and not really exemplifying it in the way that other female bands had done in the past or who were their contemporaries. But they made ideals of feminism accessible to an audience who might not have really gone down that path otherwise. So although their brand of feminism certainly could be critiqued, (laughs) it was one very much of the time as far as 90s mainstream feminism went, it really wasn't going that far past girl power in the mainstream idea of feminism. You have people, of course, who are discussing feminism on a deeper level, but as far as like the general conversation (laughs) was really not getting that deep. It was kind of pop feminism. It was pop feminism, exactly. And I think the Spice Girls are just a perfect representation of that kind of pop feminism to the point where they made that their brand and it propelled them to the giant superstardom that they had across the globe to the point where they still have an impact that's felt today. I mean, look at how many times Wannabe has been streamed on Spotify. That song came out in like 96. (laughs) It's wild. So that was really my biggest connection is how the Spice Girls and Jane Austen are both exemplars of what feminism looked like in their specific time period. That was delightful. I Thank loved, you so much. I loved the comparison of Spice Girls and Jane Austen both being sort of the forefront of mainstream feminism. Mm-hmm. So I never would have thought of that. I love it. Thank you. It's very much my brand. Okay, speaking of very much a brand, please, I cannot wait to hear your connection between Lord of the Rings and Jane Austen. I'm so excited. It's hilarious to me that you called out my brand because I feel like outside of very specific people, I'm not known for being into Lord of the Rings. No, it's just because I know you too well. It's just because you know me too well. (laughs) All right. So I have like a serious, genuine connection, but then I also have a little bit of a bonus. Oh, good. First off, to start with the sincerity, I think that both Lord of the Rings and Jane Austen are exemplars of stories that rely on both the fallibility and the interdependency of just humanity. Beautiful. Love it. Yeah. So that was, that's really short and simple, but that's like the heart of the connection that I see there. Similar to The Good Place, which we've talked about earlier, that humans are flawed, but they're redeemable and they deserve to be redeemed. Yes. But then I also have a bonus. Yes. I sat down... (laughs) looked at what I was doing and just said, why? What is this? So I'm I'm channeling Lauren. Oh, God. And I'm deciding which characters match up. Yes. <laughs> These are completely subjective. I did this in like a half an hour before coming to record. So they're all extremely questionable. But I have tried to take the nine members of the Fellowship of the Ring <laughs> and connect them to Austin characters. I cannot wait. All right, all right. I'm beginning with Gandalf. Okay. Who I have connected to Sir Thomas Bertram. Say more. (laughs) Because they're both sort of in the role almost of a patriarch. They are directing the family or the group. And both of them have also made some quite grievous decisions in in that time. I see it. I see it. I'm glad you see it. Yep. (laughs) Next up, we have Baromir. Okay. Who is Charlotte Lucas. (laughs) Why? (laughs) They both also make decisions that can only be disagreed with, but they have made them for intensely practical reasons. Charlotte is trying to preserve her dignity and her autonomy as a woman of the Regency. Mm -hmm. Boromir is trying to preserve and protect his land. Okay. All right. 
I don't remember what decision Boromir made because I'm not as big into Lord of the Rings <laughs> he, as I should be. He tried he tried to take the ring from Frodo oh. to to bring it to Gondor to use its power against Sauron. Okay, thank you. Uh, he failed and he died. Well, so. <laughs> at least things went better for Charlotte, I guess. There's the you tried star skidding across the screen. Yeah. Also, please no one cancel me for these. Lord of the Rings means too much to me <laughs> to be canceled over this. This is not cancelable. This is not a cancelable take. I don't know. Some of them might be. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Continue. All right. Aragorn is very simple. He is Mr. Darcy. Oh, yeah. That tracks. Because they both start out suspicious, and it turns out they're a king. <laughs> I was just going to go, like, start off suspicious and prickly, and then you find out they're really lovable, but you went straight for king. I love it. <laughs> this is, at least I am a Mr. Darcy stan. I was going to say this is a Darcy Stan podcast, but I don't want to speak. For no, him. I would concur. Okay, thank you. All right. Gimli was honestly the hardest, but I've decided to go for Marianne Dashwood. <laughs> what? It is mostly about the sensibility that each of them feels in their souls. <laughs> On the surface, they don't have much in common, but... No, I see it. The, the softness that defines Marianne is reflected so beautifully in the way that Gimli feels about Galadriel <laughs> and the land of Lothlorien. Oh my god. Yep. Okay. Yep. I follow. Okay, good. Legolas is Jane Bennett. Because they're so pretty? Because they're very pretty. They're very talented. They're a little bit backwoods, but they're beloved by their family. Not backwoods. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mary and Pippin just based entirely on vibes, are Kitty and Lydia Bennett. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Avi. Now we're getting into Frodo and Sam, which were also difficult. Surprisingly, not as hard as Gimli. Mm -hmm. But also, I went back and forth a little bit. Sam, I have decided, is Fanny Price. Oh, okay. Because he is very level-headed, but often his opinion is dismissed on first blush. He is all about supporting and looking out for the people that he is with, even occasionally to his own detriment. Nailed it. And finally, we have Frodo, who is Eleanor Dashwood. Oh my god. <laughs> Both of them, their true longing has been for the simple life. That's but they, they have really to want. go through so much to get there. You know, some of us have to walk to Mordor for the simple life. Others just kind of have to <laughs> go through the minefield of, of Fanny Dashwood. <laughs> So those are my character connections between Lord of the Rings and Shane Austin. Round of applause. Well done. Thank well done. You. Thank you. <laughs> Man, I don't know how you do that so often. It's so difficult to make those connections. This is what happens in my brain on a daily basis. I just now get to verbalize it. <laughs> so that's, that's what we have. Those are our wildly disconnected topics that we have now very tenuously made part of the Jane Austen canon. Nobody look at them too closely. Please. And thank you. There's a lot of cracks in there. <laughs> <laughs> but I love doing this. It's so much fun. It also gives me a chance to play Lauren's little pop culture games. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, I did not take this chance to do extra history research. The only thing I researched was when did feminism come into use as a term? <laughs> this has been so much fun. Thank you all for submitting topics. It's so much more fun to have other people submit the topics rather than us try and come up with them on our own, especially because I think we get such a wide range when we put it to the audience at large rather than just trying to come up with things ourselves. So much appreciated. Yes, it's delightful. Well, this is our final episode of season three. 
We are going to be taking a little bit of a break, not as long as the last one. Mm Mm-mm. We will be back on August 17th with the first episode of Emma. Yay! Which we're both very excited about. In the meantime, if you did not catch our appearance at Virtual Jane Con with the ladies from The Thing About Austin, you should definitely go check that out. It is on our YouTube channel. It is a true Six Degrees game. So whereas in this episode, we just kind of said free for all and we're going to find whatever connection we want. In our YouTube video, we actually go through and we make multiple degrees of separation or connection between the random topics that we have and a random object or character or concept from Jane Austen. And it was a delight to film. We hope that you find it a delight to watch. Some of those steps were just as wild as the connections we make here. So please, if you have not watched it, highly recommend. We had so much fun. Aside from our YouTube video with a thing about Austin, also be on the lookout for a live tweet of the movie adaptation of Mansfield Park that y'all chose on Twitter. So we will be live tweeting the 1999 Mansfield Park. So depending on when you're listening, it may have already happened and you can go back and read all of our reactions in real time, or you can join us and tweet along with us as we watch the 1999 version of Mansfield Park. Additionally, if you are a patron at the $5 and $10 level, then you can receive our season sticker for this season of Mansfield Park. It will be available to anyone who pledges before Emma begins on August 17th. So as long as you've pledged before then, then you will get the season three sticker. And of course, current patrons will receive the sticker just for virtue of being fantastic and still being a patron. And we love you. I think that's it. (laughs) I think that's it. I think we're officially done with season three. Oh my gosh. Wild. So wild. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Reclaiming Jane. When we come back from our break, we'll be reading the first five chapters of Emma to start our fourth season. To read our show notes and a transcript of this episode, check out our website, reclaimingjanepod.com, where you can also find the full back catalog and links to our social media. If you'd like to support us and gain access to exclusive content, including our season sticker, you can join our Patreon at Reclaiming Jane Pod. Reclaiming Jane is produced and co-hosted by Lauren Weathers and Emily Davis-Hale. Our music is by Latasha Bundy and our show art is by Emily Davis-Hale. See you next time, nerds! Y'all, why did you do this to me? (laughs) So we can get it over with right off the bat. You don't have to dread it. No, but why was it suggested and then you voted on it and now I have to talk about it? (laughs) Oh, sorry. I thought you were saying specifically me. No, listeners, why? Like, I get it, because I would have also voted for the same thing, but, oh. (laughs) (laughs) All right, enough complaining. Talk about it. fine. All right, so...